Turn with me, please, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 9. Today we will be continuing on in uh, Matthew's wonderful Gospel as we wrapped up chapter 8 last week. Chapter 8 is really the good introduction to chapter 9, as this is now uh, the section of Matthew's Gospel where Jesus' authority is expressed and explained. All of chapter 8 is this introduction into really who this Jesus is. And we have seen in chapter 8 that Jesus is a great healer, that he is one who has authority uh, to heal physical ailments, but also he has authority over the physical world where he calms the storm and he heals disease. But then at the end of chapter 8, we see that Jesus has all authority over the supernatural where he casts demons out of the men in Gadarene and sends them into the pigs and down into the ocean. He heals not just physically, he heals spiritually. He is supernaturally Lord over all. So if you will stand with me as we read Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 through 8, please. We're going to see today even further how Jesus has authority over all things. And getting into a boat, He crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven or to say, rise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and he went home. And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Let's pray. Dear God, we praise you for your word always. And today we come to a passage in Matthew's gospel that many have taken out of context in church history and even in our current uh, modern times, the idea that healing is salvation and that's all that the church is about can be distortion of your word. And so, God, I pray that today you would wake us up to enlighten us to the truth of your word. Let your Holy Spirit illuminate the truth here to us, that what Jesus does is more than just magic tricks and performance, and neither does this mean that as Christians we snap our fingers and demand healing as well. There's something much deeper here that work, and God, I pray that you would cause us to see your hand here. Also, God, I pray that your word today would also speak directly into our hearts. As we see in this story, also those who were arrogant and prideful in their religious intellectualism. Dear God, I pray that you would caution us to not fall into the same error. And so please speak to us in your word. This time is for you, and we are listening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Have a seat. Have a seat. This is an interesting story, isn't it? We, this is one of these stories that we study in Sunday school and vacation Bible school. Who was it? I think Carla was asking on Wednesday night about flanographs. You were asking if we had... Remember the flanographs, guys? 
where in Sunday school, you, we didn't have high-tech computer stuff, and we didn't have televisions in the Sunday school room. Uh, and, and, and Sunday school teachers, bless their hearts, that not, not many of them were artistic, but they had a good heart to teach Bible stories. But so you could get these little cut-out fabric, these cut-out figures in fabric, and, and, and you would stick them on a, on a wall that, that was fabric. And remember telling the story there? Those were powerful. And this is one of these stories. I remember years ago uh, in... in in my younger years, actually in the 1990s, one of the ways that I earned my living was as, a, gra- as a, a, a freelance graphic designer and illustrator. I actually earned my living that way for many years. And I would travel to Nashville once or twice a year and do uh, illustration work. For Then it was called the Baptist Sunday School Board. Now it's called Lifeway. I would pick up work there every, every now and then. And I illustrated this story for a Sunday School quarterly once. They hired me to do some illustrations for this story. And you can imagine, wow, picturing Jesus teaching. And all these crowds are around. And this man is carried by other friends to be healed. And there's a lot going on here, isn't there? I think what we can see in this story is, one, there's a strong theme of faith here in this text. Jesus witnesses faith, not just words of faith. He witnesses faith in action, doesn't he? He, And when he witnesses the faith, he heals this man who is unable to walk. Jesus even says so. He honors their faith. And Jesus shows in this story his authority over the body, but he's showing his authority over sin by showing his authority over the body because Jesus, the one thing that gets him in trouble here is your sins are forgiven. Who has authority to do that? Amen? But Jesus, healing by grace, is something that we see here that we could clearly see a connection between the healing of the physical body is pointing to the healing of the soul. And it's all through grace. It's not by anything that anyone earns. It's not by anything that anyone does. It's not by anything that anyone claims, I claim my healing in the name of Jesus. We don't see any of this here. What we see clearly is Jesus and His authority to not only heal, but to also forgive. And this is a much deeper truth in the Gospels that many people glance over because they stop at the miracles of healing and they worship that rather than seeing exactly why Jesus heals to begin with. It's to point to heaven. It's to point to the grace that God is pouring out upon His sinful creation to forgive sins. That's what we see here in this text. We've got to remind ourselves here as we're, as we're reading this story that faith is known by God alone, faith. When we're in, in our religious tradition here of sovereign grace, this is what kind of sets us apart, I guess, as a church in our community. That's the name of our church, Sovereign Grace Baptist Church. What do we understand sovereign grace to be? And I think we see a lot of this in this text. Sovereign grace is that God alone is sovereign and God alone expresses His grace upon those who do not deserve His favor. That's what grace means. We do not earn His favor. We do not claim His favor. We do not grab His attention and earn our favor. It is 
through faith in God alone, through Christ alone, that anything occurs, period. Salvation, understanding of the scriptures, our existence as Christians, even the fact that we gather as a church is through Christ alone, period. And it's through the sovereignty of all that God is. And we see all of that here. Faith is known by God alone. That's what I want us to walk away with from this text today, if nothing else. Faith is known by God alone. You and I do not discern someone's level of faith. But faith can be seen through the evidence of actions, diligence, perseverance. We see evidence of faith. Jesus witnessed the evidence of faith of the ones who were carrying this man who was paralyzed, and he witnessed the the faith of this man who was paralyzed as well through their actions. Yet Jesus also saw deeper into who they really were, into their very souls, their very thoughts. Now, this miracle story, and it is a miracle story, right? I don't know about you. Has anybody ever seen somebody paralyzed on on a gurney? Get up and walk? I haven't. I've even witnessed some people who had claimed to have the power of healing go up to a casket at a funeral and claim that they come rising up out of that casket. I have witnessed this. And it doesn't happen. Why? It's because people take the idea of healing miracles out of context. They don't see what the truth is here in a story like this. This is a miracle story, and it's seen by many as the most profound of Jesus' healing miracles. It's one of the greatest miracles he's, he does in healing. So there's much more here than just a miraculous healing. I think there's some lessons here that we can see. Number one, I think we can see that there is danger in connecting illness to sin. Let's make sure we don't make that problem here. We can also see that there is a danger of self-righteous judgment, passing judgment on someone else's actions as if they are not truly faithful. Let's make sure we don't fall into that error. That's a lesson. There's also a lesson of the importance of faith here, faith that draws the desperate sinner to Christ. That's central to this miracle of healing. And then over all of this, we see the sovereignty of Christ to not only heal, but to judge and to forgive. Wow. There's a lot here in the story. Y'all ready? Ready to jump into it? Okay, that was just the intro. All right. Y'all hold on tight to the roller coaster. Let's go. Let's, Let's set the scene here in Matthew's gospel. Now, Matthew chapter 8, like I was saying, this was at the very end, Jesus has left uh, the land of the Gadarenes, Matthew's gospel takes us from this place as Jesus crosses back across the Sea of Galilee. And I'm going to say he goes back to Capernaum. doesn't say directly, but we can infer this. And getting into a boat, verse 1, he crossed over and came to his own city. I actually, in doing some research, uh, and, and I'm going to say where this came from, it actually came from Calvin's commentary. He claims that this was not Capernaum. He claims that this was Nazareth. I thought he was weird. That's a weird that's a weird understanding of this text. I don't think Calvin was right there. Okay? Yeah, I said it from the pulpit. John Calvin was wrong. Now, some Reformed people will hear this and they'll say, Pastor Bryant has gone off the deep end. Calvin was wrong here. Jesus goes back to Capernaum. I think that's very obvious here when you connect chapter 8 to chapter 9. Matthew says that Capernaum call he calls Capernaum Jesus' own city here. 
Now, that does, that's where the misunderstanding is. When you look at verse 1, and getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. Now, you could, if you didn't understand the Scriptures, you might think, well, Jesus was going back to Nazareth or Bethlehem. That's not where he's going. He, he's going back to Capernaum. Capernaum became Jesus' home base of operation during his ministry. Even though Jesus, he was born where? Come on, church folk. Where was Jesus born? Bethlehem. And, he, and where did he go after his birth when they fled? Went to Egypt. Yeah, uh, North Africa. Uh, lived there during his toddler years for sure. We don't know exactly how long. But then he grows up in Nazareth. His childhood was in Nazareth because we know that Jesus was called the Nazarene. But it seems that Capernaum became his hometown. Many of us in this room, we have older children who have left the nest, and they don't ever stay in their hometown where they grew up. They always leave, don't they? I did, right? Seems like our children, Jesus left his hometown that he grew up in and set up base in Capernaum. We see all of this in chapter 8. And so we see here that Jesus in Capernaum, and we see this in Matthew chapter 8, verse 14, where Jesus was often found in Peter's home. Peter's home was kind of his base of operation there in Capernaum, it seems like. We, see, we can glean this from the Gospels. Peter's house was, must have been very close down to the Sea of Galilee because he was a fisherman, and they could walk from there down to the sea, into the boats easily. We see that regularly. So this is what's happening. When we see here, he comes to his own city. And, and now Luke's account, if, if you're taking notes, this story in Matthew chapter 9 can be found in Mark chapter 2 and in Luke chapter 5. These are the three accounts of this same scene. Now, Luke's account, chapter 5, verse 17, tells us that Jesus was teaching on this day, and many of the Pharisees and doctors of the law or the scribes were drawn there. So as Jesus is teaching, not only were there other crowds of people coming, somehow the scribes, the doctors of the law, were attracted to what Jesus was doing there. They're probably coming out of the synagogue, the local synagogue, coming in to say, what is this teacher doing? What's he up to? He's he's starting to get a reputation. He healed Peter's mother-in-law back in chapter 8. He was teaching and preaching in and around Capernaum. He has now gone across the Sea of Galilee and back, and I promise you what he did in the land of the Gadarenes, that story spread before they ever landed back in Capernaum. You know how stories go. So Jesus has got this reputation, and these scribes, these doctors of the law, according to Luke's account, they're wanting to see what's happening. Have you ever taught a Bible study, and you got people showing up to test you to see if you're teaching the truth or not? Anybody ever been there, done that? Trust me, as a pastor, it happens to me all the time. People will come and listen to sermons just to, just to check me out. And then they, they call me that afternoon or later that week, I've got something to tell you, Pastor, you said something wrong. Happens all the time. All the time. Matthew's account here, Matthew chapter 9, tells us in verse 3 that the scribes think evil of Jesus for healing and forgiving this man. They say, this man is blaspheming. Now, notice that they don't say it out loud. Matthew's account and actually the other two accounts in the Gospels indicate the same thing. It says, if they are talking to themselves, verse 3, and behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. We're going to come back to that here in a second. Has anybody ever had a thought towards someone else? Never voice it, 
But you look at what they're doing and you think, wow, that's just not godly. How many of us have been guilty of that? It's interesting that those who focus on intellectual faith, and we are a church that I would say that many of us here in this church, we like to think about the Gospels. We like to think about Scripture. We like to think about doctrine. We like to think about theology. It's interesting that those who focus on the intellectual aspects of faith are often drawn to great teachers. These scribes, you could say, were the intellectual thinkers. They were the intellectual religious people of the the Jewish tradition. They were thinking people. And they were drawn to Jesus because he was getting a great reputation as a great teacher. So if you're an intellectual thinker, you're generally drawn to great thinkers. If nothing else, just to kind of hear something new and try to think it through. That's what these guys must have been doing. Um, now, in our own today, in our own tradition today, um, many, let's just be honest, many of us have our favorite superstar Christian celebrity teacher or preacher, don't we? Anybody got their favorite celebrity preacher or teacher? Generally, they're on, uh, they used to be on TV, now they're on the internet. Now they've got their podcast or they're selling books or, or, or Bible studies. Are we, all, are we all, you know, see where I'm headed here? One can always know which of the great celebrity preachers somebody listens to the most. I, as a pastor, let me just give you a hint. I can tell exactly where you guys spend most of your time by what you tell me. Charles Stanley on TV is the greatest. You know, Charles Stanley says, like you spend a lot of time watching Charles Stanley. Or, boy, did you listen to John Piper's sermon last week? Did you hear what happened in the, in the Twitter sphere about John Piper? You know, John Piper says. Or, John MacArthur really knows how to dig into the meat of scriptures, doesn't he? And you compare every Bible study you do to John MacArthur. Or every sermon that someone preaches to John MacArthur. You know, John MacArthur says, R.C. Sproul was such a giant of the Christian faith. You know, I love Ligonier Ministries, don't you? I hear that all the time. You know, R.C. Sproul said, these scribes, these teachers of the law, the intellectual thinkers, they were coming to listen to Jesus to see what he was all about, to see if he was worthy of their attention. Because Because Jesus was clearly becoming the superstar religious man of the moment. And people were flocking to him to listen to his great teaching. There was something about Jesus and his teaching that Matthew is showing us here. Remember when we covered the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7, great multitudes were there. As he's coming down off of the mountain, great multitudes were there. As he was healing uh, in Capernaum and touching uh, Peter's mother-in-law, there were great crowds there. There was something that was elevating Jesus' reputation to celebrity status. And these scribes were there to see what was going on. And so as they witness what Jesus is doing, they find fault. Why? Because they were more focused on their intellectual faith than they were about what God was doing in reality. And I bring this up for this reason. Because how many of us in this church and in this tradition of ours that we have, we spend so much time in the intellectual pursuits of theology and doctrine and we miss the mysteries of the faith. And we miss that hidden movement of the hand of God 
that he does within everybody that he calls to repentance. And we judge someone's attitudes and their salvation because they don't say the words that we want them to say and they don't word things exactly the way they should be worded and they're not acting the way we want them to act, yet God clearly is working in them. It's caution because it is such a problem in our Reformed tradition. We are intellectual thinkers. Now, you know that I'm a firm believer that Christians should be thinking. I am not one of these guys that, that says just follow Christ blindly and live and let live and oh, whatever, and let's just live faith how we feel. You know, I'm not that kind of a pastor. I am one who encourages us to think. But there's a caution from this story, I think, that we do not take the intellectual faith too far to where we blind ourselves to what God is doing. Amen? While we're called to discern the spirits, and we are, that's part of, part of what these scribes must have been doing in, in their hearts. They were discerning whether or not Jesus was a true teacher or not. They were discerning. And even, if we were even told in 1 John chapter 4, uh, to test the spirits to see whether they are from God. There is something important about discerning whether or not someone's teaching is biblical and godly or not, to discern whether someone's salvation is genuine or not. There is room for that in the scriptures. But we have to be cautious here to discern between genuine shepherds of the faith and wolves who destroy the body of Christ. And we're reminded in this passage that intellectual faith alone can blind us to the miracles of God and to blind us to his sovereignty. Let's not worship the intellectual pursuit of faith and miss the glorious salvation that God does through Christ alone in ways that we don't decide. Let's look here at Matthew chapter 9, verse 2. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your, sons are, your sins are forgiven. Now we see here in this scene that Jesus is teaching here, and they bring to him someone lying on a bed. Other accounts of this, in Luke's account and in Mark's account, it's a little more specific they, they, Luke's account and Mark's account actually say that, that friends carried this man in. Now, Jesus is teaching, and his healings are going on in this house while he's teaching. Matter of fact, Luke's account, Luke chapter 5, verse 17, says that in this scene, the power of the Lord was with him to heal. Can you imagine a Bible study, a home teaching session, where people were there to listen to be taught, but they were so drawn by the Holy Spirit that they were bringing their demon-possessed friends and family members and this paralyzed man who could not walk to Jesus because there was such an allure and such a power in the teaching that they knew that God was at work. Those who were desperate were drawn to the truth. Those who were too intellectual in their faith were blinded to the truth. You see the comparison here. Now, Matthew 9, 2 tells us very little about what's happening. It just says that a man was brought in lying on a bed. Now, when you read that one sentence, and behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on the bed. If someone is paralyzed, can they walk on their own? Clearly not. The story tells us that this paralyzed man is brought to Jesus. Why? Because there was no... I mean, he was... 
his teaching was attractive. The power of the Lord was in the room to heal. And so this paralytic who's lying on the bed indicates clearly that others were carrying him, and they brought this helpless man to Jesus. Now, the account in Mark and Luke indicate that those who carried this man could not actually get to Jesus because there was so much activity. So many people were crowded in around. They could not get through the doors of the house. They couldn't get in. And so they opened a hole in the roof and lowered the paralytic down to Jesus. That's what Mark's account and Luke's account tells us. They couldn't get through the doorway. They go to the roof and they tear a hole in the roof. They rip a hole in the house and they lower this man. Now that, now that takes perseverance, doesn't it? You want to get this paralyzed man to Jesus. You can't get in the normal way. You don't let that stop you. And you do whatever it takes to get to Jesus. Jesus witnesses this level of faith. Nothing stops them. They bypass the crowds to get to Jesus. And their actions are evidence of faith because they're diligent and they persevere. Nothing was going to stop them. No obstacle would hinder their coming to Christ. They would not have gone to the trouble of opening a hole in the roof if they had not gleaned the courage and confidence from the Spirit Himself to succeed in this craziness. Think about this. This is not a story that says, do whatever you have to do to get to Jesus and He'll love you for it. That's not what's happening here. Who in their right mind would climb to the roof of a house and open a hole through it to lower somebody down to Jesus? That's madness. That's got to be some kind of a supernatural calling and and direction to do that. I'm not saying that they were possessed by the Holy Spirit. Now, that goes a little bit too crazy, (laughs) okay? They weren't possessed by demons like we saw in chapter 8. But they were clearly drawn and inspired by the Holy Spirit to get to Jesus in whatever way is necessary. And no matter how crazy it looks to mankind, it was honored by Christ himself. Now that is a move of the Holy Spirit. You see the point here? If someone is called to salvation, if they're called to Jesus Christ, no matter what is in their way, the Holy Spirit will motivate them and direct them and guide them to bypass that by all means necessary to get to Jesus. Now, for us, we look at that, boy, that's nuts. But Jesus looked at it and said, that's faith. This is a further definition of what faith is. Faith is not just, I love Jesus. Yes, I do. I love Jesus. How about you? That's not faith. Faith is whatever the Holy Spirit has inspired you to do to get to Jesus Christ, you do it, no matter how crazy it looks to the world. Now, don't go so crazy and think that the Holy Spirit is calling you to do something that is ungodly and uh, and illegal. I I don't think the Holy Spirit will be calling you to do that. Or harmful to other people. You still have to have discernment here and wisdom. (laughs) Tearing a hole in the roof of a house is not really harming anybody. They're probably going to fix the roof later. It's okay. But you see the faith we see here? Faith shines in the energy of these people. They do not tire in coming to Christ. That's a lot of work to rip through a roof. That roof was not just like plywood. It was probably several, probably a foot or two thick of mud and and straw and hay and rock, like a homemade mixture of concrete or plaster. That's what they dug through. That's hard. 
Now let's take a look here at verse 2, but also compare verse 2 to verses 5 through 7. Look here at verse 2. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed, and when Jesus, what, saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm standing there in that room and I see a paralyzed man being laid before Jesus, I would expect that Jesus would say, get up and walk. What does he say? Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Blows my mind. Wait a minute. This man's coming to get healed, Jesus, and you're forgiving his sins? Have you just not noticed what's happening here, Jesus? Are you not paying attention to this man's condition? You see what's happening? But look here at verses 5 through 7. After these scribes condemn Jesus and think evil of him, according to verse 4, look at Jesus' response. He looks at him and says, For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Verse 7, And he rose, and he went home. Jesus does what needs to be done here. Now, lest we fall into the error of saying that the man's paralysis was the reason for his sin or his sin was the reason for his paralysis, let's make sure that we don't miss the point here. The man's unrepentant sin is not the reason for his illness. I don't think that we can overlook the obvious connection here to the fallen world that we live in, the fallen existence that we find ourselves in that is caused by sin. What does the fallen world look like that we live in? Well, we've got disease. (laughs) We've got, uh, we've got murder. We've got decay, right? You can build a house, and in 10 years, it's not new anymore, and you've got to repair it. Actually, probably sooner than that now. You buy a refrigerator or a, an appliance of some kind, how long does it take now for it to break down? We live in a fallen world. That began by, I mean, this decay and this fallenness of all anything around us, even the illnesses that we encounter, the anxiety we suffer through, harm toward others, jealousy, greed, all of this is the begin, is the, it has a root in sin. The fallen world we live in causes all of this. Jesus applauds the faith of this paralytic and he applauds the faith of his friends. Faith is the trust here passionate and fervent faith in a fallen world. The sin of the world, yes, it, it is the cause of the paralysis of this man, but this man's not paralyzed because he's, sin, he's a sinner either. He is a sinner, but God's not punishing this man because he's a sinner. It's the result of a natural fallen condition that we have caused in this world. Matthew 9, 2 tells us that Jesus saw their faith. Now, notice it's not Jesus saw his faith. He saw their faith. This is a plurality. In other words, he's witnessing more than one faith here, not just the sole faith of the paralyzed man. He sees their faith. I think that we can glean from these words here that if a loved one or a friend of ours struggles in faith toward Christ, our faith in Christ for salvation on behalf of them, does have merit here. doesn't mean that we save anyone else. Our faith does not save anyone. Jesus notices their faith. Now, what's he talking about? He's clearly talking about the ones who are carrying the man in. 
But I think he's clearly also talking about the paralyzed man's faith too. He's included in this. Our faith in Christ for salvation on behalf of others does have merit in Christ's eyes. doesn't mean that our faith saves someone else's. Someone else still has to have their own faith in Christ too. But God does honor the faith of you and me for someone else's salvation and the fact that as we come to Christ on behalf of others, he will honor that prayer, he will honor that attitude, and someone else will be drawn by the Holy Spirit as well because of that faith. He does respond to the faithful actions and the prayers of others. God does do that. But we've got to remind ourselves here as well, I want to drive this point home, that the paralytic could not have been forgiven and saved from his sins apart from his own faith in Christ as well. So it's a harmony. Their faith means everybody. Not just the ones carrying, but also the man himself. The faith of his friends carrying him to Christ is clearly powerful indeed. And Jesus honored that as he also saw the heart of the man too. In the end, the one saved will be transformed by the power and the blood of Christ, but it's the faithful prayers of others, a mother, a father, a friend, or even the prayers of a stranger for someone else that Christ will honor as he desires. Anybody here ever pray for somebody you don't even know? Sure. If our faith in that prayer is genuine, Christ will honor that doesn't mean that he's saying, okay, because of, because of Pastor Brian's faith, so-and-so is now saved. That's not how it works. Because of the faithful prayer of, of you, I am, the Holy Spirit is going to be stirred up in someone else as well. And they still have to come in faith on their own. It's both and. You see that? After all, let's think about this. None of us who are Christians here came to Christ on our own. Would you agree? None of us came to Christ on our own. Full dependence upon another is the path to salvation, period. We are dependent upon another for our salvation all the time. Faith in Christ is the ultimate source of our salvation. It's the beginning and the end of salvation, Christ alone. Faith in Christ, period, is the path to salvation. Therefore, if the faith of another is honored by Christ on behalf of another... The idea of faith outside of, our still, outside of ourselves is still present here. That's still what's at play. Faith outside of ourselves is still the center of this story. The man who's paralyzed had faith in someone else, Christ. He also had faith that his friends were carrying him and he trusted them. The, men, the, the friends carrying him to Christ, they had faith in Christ. Otherwise, they wouldn't have torn through a roof. <laughs> Right? So all of this, there's this interdependence on others in this story. You see the multiple layers here? Wow. That'll blow your mind. Now let's look at verse 3. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. Now, let's unpack this, and, and this will be kind of the end of where we go here. The danger of self-righteous judgment is evident in verses 3, 4, and 5. Who is this man speaking blasphemy. Luke's account says, who can forgive sins but God alone? 
This man is blaspheming. They're saying that, look here in verse 3. Behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, they could have been whispering to one another. They could have just been thinking. The indication here is that they were thinking, because verse 4, but Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? Now, there's an eye-opener, isn't it? How many of us have thought evil of others and thought, well, this is just my secret? we got evidence there in the Gospels. Jesus knows the evil thoughts just as well as he knows the godly thoughts. And as he's, as he's sitting there and, he, and Jesus is aware of what's going on, he calls them out on it. But how many of us in this room have fallen into the same sin as these elite intellectual thinkers, these scribes, these doctors of the law? How many of us have fallen into the same problem? How many of us speak in our minds the same words that these religious intellectuals speak? We judge others for blasphemy because they don't teach the Scriptures the way they're supposed to. How many of us have been guilty of that? We may never voice it out loud, or we may never express the same attitudes of judgment, uh, but we can be prideful. How many of us celebrate the fact that we told somebody off in their error in teaching Scripture? How many of us have celebrated and high-fived one another because we corrected someone's error in their interpretation of Scripture? How many of us have celebrated that fact? I think these men here that Jesus calls out are doing the same thing. Wow, we're so prideful. We know, look, we are going to condemn Jesus. He's a blasphemy. We are guilty in our Protestant tradition, especially in this reformed tradition that we find ourselves in of condemning people because they don't say the right reformed language that we do. How many of us have been guilty of that? Someone who comes to a Bible study or comes to sermons regularly who is actually coming out of, let's say, a free will background or thinking that we save ourselves, God is waiting for us to accept him, and we condemn them for that? We even high-five one another in saying, look, I've set them straight. Jesus knows the heart of every sinner. We do not. Jesus knows the heart of everyone who is attracted to the Word of God. If someone comes into this congregation from another church tradition and they don't align 100% with our Reformed doctrine, yet they're coming week after week after week and month after month after month, They are coming because the Holy Spirit is calling them through His Word. We focus on the right teaching and preaching of God's Word, don't we? It is the Holy Spirit that does the convicting. It is the Holy Spirit that illuminates the truth. It is the Holy Spirit that saves. Jesus Christ saves and the Holy Spirit draws us to Him. Jesus knows the heart of every one of us. I don't know your heart. You don't know my heart. Jesus knows the heart of every sinner. Jesus knows the secrets of divine healing, and he knows the secrets of forgiveness that none of us will ever grasp. Jesus knows who's being drawn to the truth. We do not. Jesus knows that if someone repeatedly comes to the preaching and the teaching of God's Word to come into a fellowship of like-minded Christians who love one another, the Holy Spirit is working in that person, and He's working in that person in a way that we don't direct and we don't define and we don't judge. 
In other words, what do we see here? What is Jesus replying to these guys when they claim that this man is blaspheming? Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, verse 4, why do you think evil in your hearts? He sets them in their place. What's happening is that the attitudes of these scribes is getting in the way. And Jesus is saying, oh, you've got evil in your heart. Let me show you what I'm doing. What does he do? Jesus reminds us that he knows every thought. He knows every repentant heart. He knows every judgmental attitude. He knows every evil thought. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? And these scribes were put in their place. Jesus overcomes them. Now look here at verse 5 through 7. For which, here's what Jesus replies to them. For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? It's a rhetorical question. Jesus calls the bluff of these pharisaical elites. This is another opportunity to show who he is. Jesus possesses an interesting, or he poses an interesting question here. Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? He's putting it back to them. He's not expecting them to answer. He's causing them to think about what they were thinking. What does Jesus mean here? I think by asking this question, he's bringing attention to the obvious double standard that these scribes of the law were under. Everyone around Jesus could easily see the need of this man. This man is paralyzed. He can't walk. Jesus, you're supposed to heal him. Either the man wants to walk again or he wants forgiveness. But Jesus knows the deeper need here. He knows that sin is the problem and that needs to be healed. And the physical is important too. Let's not forget, the physical healing is important too. But the physical is merely an outward reflection of the deeper inner center problem. Jesus is not looking for an answer to all of these double-minded scribes of the law. It's a way of pointing out to them the difference, yet same options in this situation. Which is easier, to heal him or to forgive him? I don't know about you. Which is easier, to heal or to forgive? For you and me, to heal is impossible unless we've got medical technology, but that's at best temporary because we're all going to die. But how difficult is it for us to even forgive? None of us can forgive our sins. It's difficult for us to forgive the sins of others who have harmed us. None of us can forgive the sin that we have committed against God Almighty. Who can forgive that sin? God alone. Either this man wants to walk again or he wants forgiveness. Which is it? That's basically what Jesus is posing here in the question. Let's look here at verse 6 through 7. Jesus continues after his question. Now, he's explaining what he's going to do. But that you may know that the Son of Man has what? Authority on earth to forgive sins. This is why he heals him. Rise. Pick up your bed and go home. Now, Jesus could have just done that and ended there, but he had a bigger point to teach. I am here to forgive sins. Amen? I'm going to say that one more time. Jesus, in this encounter, is teaching us all why he's here. Jesus came to what? Forgive sins, which is the greater need of every sinner the greater need of every one of us who are alive. Amen? We all suffer physical ailments. Those of us who are aging, we're suffering more ailments every single day. But we all suffer ailments. Do we stop 
at the healing of the body and ignore the healing of the soul? No, Jesus is saying the greater need here is the forgiveness of sins. He explains his actions here by pointing out to the scribes that Jesus is going to show his full glory and authority here. Not only over the physical body, also over the sinful soul, but also Jesus is showing his authority over their intellectual piety. You see that? Verse 6, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He heals the man. This healing is an outward sign, but it's a sign of Jesus' authority to do much more. He not only heals this man, he forgives him. So let's not forget the first thing Jesus said was, your sins are forgiven. That's the primary point here. Since the miracles and the signs of Jesus all point to heaven, remember they're just glimpses of heaven, we can see here in this text the deeper purpose of physical healing is to point to the greater need, the healing of our sin. It's merely to, the physical healing is not a, a, a cure of the physical problems alone, nor is it a cure of emotional or mental problems. Physical healing is a sign of the greater disease, and that greater disease is sin. Amen? And Jesus has all authority to grant healing or not to grant healing. Jesus has all authority to grant forgiveness or not to grant forgiveness. That's the other thing we need to see here as well. What do we see? The primary thing that the sinner does in any salvation journey is to embrace Jesus through faith. And faith is that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. Do you have, do, in other words, those of us who, who, who claim the name of Christ, do we genuinely have the faith that Jesus has the authority to forgive all sin? Not just our sin, does Jesus have the authority to forgive all sin? Even the sin of someone else that you see. If Jesus has that authority, do we have faith that Jesus will forgive them too? I hope so. Because remember in Psalm 32, it says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Jesus has the power to heal. He has the power to forgive. He has the power to heal the soul. He has the power to heal the body. But this last point here is this. Just as the healing is proven by an action. In other words, if Jesus said, you are healed, and the man did not get up and walk, Jesus would have been seen as a false prophet. So there had to be an action following the healing to prove that he was right. Likewise, when there is forgiveness of sin, there is also evidence of the forgiveness. <laughs> there is some kind of an action that follows to show that you are truly forgiven. Amen? So that is evidence that if someone is, if, if Jesus speaks forgiveness, then there is evidence that we have been forgiven. <laughs> if Jesus speaks healing, there is evidence of the healing. This man gets up and walks. I would say that there was then action that showed that Jesus' forgiveness in this man was seen in his life from that point forward. That's why this story is here. Note that the actions of Christ grant the forgiveness, not the actions of the paralyzed man or the people carrying him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word.
and you have given us much to ponder today. And so, God, I pray that through this narrative in Matthew's gospel, this very common and well-known Bible story of the paralytic being healed, Lord, I pray that you would challenge each and every one of us here in how we approach you. Do we come to you, Jesus, no matter the obstacles? Do we bypass whatever mental blocks that the Satan is giving us to get to you? Are we overcoming the secular uh, draw and the secular interference of the secular world? Are we drawn to you and we cast aside everything that, that hinders us? Dear God, I pray that you would motivate us and inspire us here through your word, that Jesus is worthy enough to come to. And he is, he's honest enough to honor our faith. But Lord, that faith is not something we manufacture. That faith is not something that we earn. That faith is something that you put in us. And so, God, I pray that you would stir each and every one of us, those in this room who do not know, do not know Christ, who do not know forgiveness of sin. Lord, I pray that you would still stir in them through your spirit to come to Jesus. Those of us who have walked with Jesus for a long time, please, dear God, refresh us every day in this fervent, active faith to come to Jesus and to remind ourselves that he has all authority to forgive, not just once, but every day. Lord, I pray that your word would settle in the hearts of everyone here. And I pray, God, that you would do as you please and that your spirit would work and move as you would have it move. As we close our service here today, God, I pray that you would be pleased. Let our song of worship please your ears. If anyone here is drawn to you through your spirit, Lord, let them move. Let them come. Let them come to Christ now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.